Graysarchy. This is a show about what rules us. Instead of conflict or force, we propose grace. Tolerance is good, forgiveness is better, but grace is ideal. Grace is empathy and favor for someone who has said or done something we don't like. It's the attempt to understand someone instead of simply condemning them to enemy status. How could this approach solve social problems? And what's the basis for this view? We explore that here on Gracearchy. Our sponsor is a group built around an ethic we admire, the Zero Aggression Principle. Check out Zero Aggression Project at www.zeroaggressionproject.org. Now, politics. It seems broken. But hardly anyone seems to understand the root of the problem. Writer Stephanie Slade gets close to the root of political brokenness in a recent Reason Magazine article titled The Authoritarian Convergence. As the media attempt to grapple with this felt reality, polarization. Slade suggests that the problem with American politics isn't polarization. It's rising illiberalism. Both the political left and political right are converging on authoritarian Jim, is polarization really the root issue? Well, Stephanie Slade would disagree that it is. I think it's important. I think we should talk about it, but I don't think it's at the root. Uh, she wrote an article for Reason Magazine, The Authoritarian Convergence. It was their cover story in the most recent uh, issue. And she's arguing that there is a uh, return of illiberalism. And we should talk a little bit about what illiberalism means. Like, what is liberalism? So liberalism means that the individual matters. Bill, you matter. Everybody listening individually matters. And the way that we set up our society and our culture, the way that we even choose to run a government is supposed to be built on the idea that we have to take the individual's happiness and flourishing into account. So whenever you say that there's a, an, a, a situation where illiberalism is becoming popular, where people are becoming opposed to liberalism, what we really are literally saying is people are being opposed to individualism. And what that means is that they want people to get with their program. They got a program, get with it. They're good. They want to oppose it uh, through some, some means of force. So this is an important distinction to make because liberal has become sort of a, you know, the L word to conservatives. But what we're talking about here is something more fundamental. We're talking about liberalism as individualism. Have I got that right? Yeah, and, and so in Europe, they still reuse this phrase correctly. We don't hear. There's, there's, there's political, partisan political reasons that that's happened uh, basically within the last hundred or so years here in the United States. So, and, and, it's, and it's kind of passed because the, the left so used up that word and real liberals have pretty much faded from the scene that there's now this, this, this more there's progressive and even socialist right, democratic yeah. socialists. They prefer to call themselves wings of the Democratic Party. So there's not really very many liberals anymore. And there are people even coming back and attempting to claim this term, which was always rooted in this idea that the individual was at the core of analysis, the core of societal design. So let's talk about the measurements for a second, because I think it's interesting how measurements themselves have changed. Mm -hmm. I know we love to be able to track the polls and all of that, but from 1972 to, to 2020, the American National Election Studies data shows that Americans who self-identify as moderates has dropped from like 55% in 72 to only 39% in 2020. 
and I know the article contrasts this and I wanna get into it because Pew Research has been trying to measure uh, the, this polarization issue. And what they found was, you know, back in 2014, like seems like a long time ago, only eight years, right? Yeah. <laughs> eight years. 92% of Republicans were to the right of the median Democrat, and 94% of Democrats were to the left of the median Republican. So it looks like things are skewing, but that isn't accurate. And they recognize that because in 21, they had a different framework for understanding this political landscape that we live in. And they, instead of having left and right, they chop things up into nine distinct subgroups. And now it's like almost impossible to measure what a real progressive is, what a real conservative is. I mean, and the liberal forget about it. How do we make sense of all of this? Yeah, they didn't necessarily in that Pew study align, right? I mean, like yeah. progressives, there were different types. Conservatives, there were different types and moderates. And so like, that's why they had nine different types laid out across the spectrum. And, and, and they were right to go in this direction. But the problem with social science is that once you start to spot a trend and you say, okay, well, we want to capture the information about this trend and you set out to measure something, you have a much greater likeliness of finding it. So I think that Pew validated that there is increased polarization. It's kind of common sense. We seem to know that something has changed dramatically since 2014. There was, Donald Trump was not on the national platform at that point. But, you know, we're making a mistake if we even blame this on Trump. I almost am sad I brought him up because I think this, a lot of this was baked into the cake uh, going back yeah. to the, and I've said this before, going back to the, the financial crisis. We were going this way anyhow, right? We, yes, there was the Occupy movement, you remember, on the left, and there yes. was a Tea Party movement on the right. So there was already this, 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 this populist split starting when the bailout happened. So, you know, it's, it's the, the, the sad thing is, you know, so just going a bit of a rant here for just a second. The sad thing is, is that when we start doing political science and people start coming up with their policy proposals, they only measure the stuff that's immediately right in front of them. And they don't take into account many things. But one of the things they don't take into account are the long term side effects of a particular decision. And it's almost like, well, we'll all be, we'll be dead in the long run, as John Maynard Keynes said. So they don't worry about that stuff. But it always comes back to bite us. And one of the things that I care about passionately, one of the things I want to talk about all the time is, okay, if we do this today, this is what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't always want, I'm not always heard. I mean, when I said those same kind of things during the uh, uh, pandemic, I was saying, you know, I was told I want grandma to die. I don't care about people. I hate people. You know, you know, all you care about is money. You don't care about uh, people. No, that's not true. I recognize that these other things are going to happen and I can see them coming like a freight train at us. And then when they arrive, then the thing that is surprising is that adults, educated, intelligent people are stunned, surprised to find out. And they forget that I told them this was coming, right? They've already tuned me down on Facebook. So they're not seeing as many of my posts or done whatever, because God forbid that they actually would listen and recognize what's coming. You feel like Cassandra because it happens again and again. It's a repeated phenomena. Um, this is that, are people stupid? <laughs> yeah. We did it last time, right? Yes. No. And so they're not, they're busy, but they're also fearful and caught in some kind of trap. Now, right. if we Who get back be, on, right? yeah. So if we get back on the, on track here, there is, they have definitely measured an increase in polarization. That's, that's definitely real. But the Pew study can't tell you what the cause of that polarization is. It can't tell you what the effects of that polarization is. It can't tell you what the motives of the people who are polarized are. And that's the trouble with social sciences. It can't really get to the root of that. We need a, what I would say is a, a more uh, philosophical, which I think uh, Stephanie provides 
analysis. She gives us, she says that there is an authoritarian convergence that both left and right have attributes that are increasingly illiberal. And I think you, we here at this show go even further. We go into the spiritual. We talk about the motives of the heart and the way people are addressing and handling things. And at fundamental root, we have an issue with fear, which is, which is false evidence appearing real. And people responding to that fear in very negative ways. And it turns out they decide that the other side is to blame uh, and they want to scapegoat that other side. So we have to, we, I want to go through Stephanie's analysis because I think it's really super valuable, but I don't think it's quite the root of the tree. I think there's one more level beneath that we should explore. Well, let's start with an existential threat because I know both, I'm not even sure what to call people anymore, progressive, let's say progressive and conservatives feel an existential threat that comes up in various ways, like, you know, this is the end of democracy as we know it and all of that. But let's start with something closer to home, which is, um, which is money specifically capitalism and socialism, two economic theories that have become increasingly polarized here in the last, I don't know, maybe it's eight years. So liberalism, you know, classically defined, means that the individual matters. The system that honors the individual the most is capitalism. This might be hard to hear, but capitalism is essentially a savings account. It's also essentially what my friend Perry Willis calls toolism. It means that you have the ability to save from your profits or your earnings to buy tools so you can be more productive, expand your business, do bigger things. And as you're able to profit, profit's not a dirty word, you're able to save and invest. You're able to buy the things that you want that can make you that, uh, to be happy and, and provide for your family. You are also able to give away and do charitable goods. And those are the fruits of that labor. So you make a decision with the money that's coming in, whether or not you're going to reallocate it into the business, that's capitalism. And, that, and, and we want everyone to have that opportunity, or you can use it, you can take some of it out and as profit, and you need the money to support yourself and to, do, to, to be able to, to share with the people that you care about and the causes that you believe in. This capitalism angle, this ability to buy tools and to save up and to, to do the job better is inherent to this private model, this liberal model. And again, in the classical sense that you own your property and you get to decide how to disperse it. That is part of your liberty and your pursuit of happiness. So there is not yet, whatever complaints you may have about the system. And in the United States, we don't really practice uh, free market capitalism. We, we practice cronyism. And so you can, where we, we privatize some of the profits and socialize many of the losses uh, for the favor of well-connected people, that is clearly an evil. And so when you have a group like Occupy getting together, when you have a group like the Tea Party getting together, at root, they recognize there's a corruption. They recognize that there's a club and they ain't in it. And then somehow or other, the, the people that run the club create a conflict machine where they set us all at each other's throats. So we start to scapegoat the other side. So I, and, got, I have a question here about this because, you know, I, I've been scapegoated for many reasons before, but how is it that socialism is scapegoating something? Oh, socialism is entirely grounded in envy. Socialism is about the fact that somebody, some group of people have more. So, you know, in, in Bernie Sanders language, it's billionaires, billionaires with billions of billions. That's the problem, okay? Because Bernie's not a billionaire. 
Bernie has three houses. Bernie's a multimillionaire. And he said, well, if you, you want to be successful, you have a best-selling book, right? No, I mean, not everybody has that available to him. And he knows that. And AOC uh, is in Congress. She believes her hundred and what is it? $78,000 a year salary is not sufficient to meet her needs, you know, to go to the parties and get the dresses and do the things that she needs to do. She too has a problem. She says it's criminal. It's wrong to be a billionaire. I happen to have a billionaire. If I happen to know one, I happen to work with one. And I, I'm aware because I'm connected to, to kind of the heart of his philanthropic enterprise, how much money he gives away. Okay. I'm aware of other instances of generosity because of our friendship. I'm, I know what he's done for a variety of people. Um, I also know that he could walk away from his business tomorrow and not be affected in the least. His life is set, but he has feels he has a commitment to the 500 some plus people that he employs year round at his company. Like he wants to make sure that their well-being and that the company is there for their benefit at this juncture. So, I mean, does he enjoy his job? Yes, he enjoys solving the puzzles. Does he want to make money? Of course, that matters. But he does care intensely about making sure that those people are taken care of. The so, idea that billionaires are somehow our enemy is, is totally grounded in this envy. AOC envies the billionaires. Bernie envies it. They, they're not saying millionaires, Bill. They're saying billionaires so, because they're not billionaires. So the, uh, the idea of like taking 45% of corporate profits and putting them in the control of, I don't know, the government, God help us, um, that somehow equalizes the playing field? In their mind, yes, but it all it, what it does is it pulls us all down to a lower level. So by pulling one group of people down, we pull all of ourselves down. And if the idea is that we all be equal, okay, well, you know, we can all be equally poor, but that's not that's not desirable for advancing human progress. That's not desirable for bringing as many people out of poverty. You know, what we have in the United States and what we call poverty here is way, way different than what it has been across the world and what it has been historically for humanity. We've, we've provided a much better standard of living. So if we're looking at these, these increasingly uh, illiberal uh, democratic socialists, who are sitting at the table making major proposals and even getting the president of the United States on board with massive amounts of spending, what we are asking for is greater poverty. Let me illustrate it in just one way. There's a number of ways to do this, but let me just give you one. It costs a certain amount, and I do not have the exact numbers in front of me for the private sector to create a job. So somebody, you know, you go, you start a business, you're going to hire somebody, and, and we know basically how much it costs to do that, to do a particular function. When the government creates a job, they spend way more, way more to create a single job. So right off the bat, we have a problem with the efficient allocation of capitalism. And one reason that you have corporate titans, one reason you have people who have been super successful in the business world is that they have figured out how to create, how to allocate capital much more efficiently. And when they fail to do so, someone will come along and steal their job. There's lots of people looking to take them out. They'll come along and steal their job. So, you know, right now we're talking and people are, are listening and almost certainly they're listening through AWS servers. The, the stream that got to you, all I'm, I guarantee, went through an AWS server at some point because AWS, Amazon Web Services, is the biggest uh, server farms out there. That's Jeff Bezos. That's Amazon. 
Jeff Bezos doesn't sleep in his servers at night. He doesn't go to vacation inside his servers. He doesn't, uh, they don't heat or cool his house. They, and they don't do any practical thing for him. You know who's living inside Jeff Bezos servers? We are right now. And we didn't pay rent to be there. So this is how wealth works. There's a limited amount that the person who has it is using. And this idea that we've got to overthrow this economic order and that income inequality is the problem. This is an anti-individual. This is about taking away opportunity for everyone to elevate their status. It's about the taking away the opportunity for people who know how to allocate capital to do a better job of doing it than Bernie Sanders and AOC. And by the way, than Donald Trump and uh, Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul and all those guys, none of those guys should be allocating capital. None of them. That's not their job. That's not their specialty. It's not their gift. So as Tucker Carlson calls it, what's the right kind of economic patriotism to have in this, in this scenario? <sighs> okay, this is, this is appallingly stupid. And I have to say it because, it because there's a lot of people who are sitting there tuning him in. And this is incredibly inconsistent with what he, the normal type of, of philosophy that he puts out. He's suggesting that perhaps the economy should be managed in a patriotic fashion. That it's not the job of any dis, distant potentate to set the rules for how the rest of us play. Again, in a liberal order, we would begin conversing about what the rules of the game are going to be, but we would pick rules that maximized the ability of everyone to have as much freedom as possible, because that's the thing that leads to the most human flourishing. So, so you get an idea if you've got to go check with 15 different agencies, get forms, get different types of pay, different types of stack taxes, get inspections, go through that whole regime. That's time you're spent. You're not spending producing. That's time you're spending, not making. And, and the sad thing about it is in this corporatist system that we do have, we don't have a capitalist system here. We don't have free market capitalism. We have a crony based system where some of the some of the losses, most of the losses, you know, for politically attached people are, are captured, they, they're, they're paid for out of you and me. That's what the bailouts were all about, right? And these bailouts are, are, are a thing that have, hap that have happened constantly historically. Various industries have been bailed out. I remember when I was a kid, them bailing out uh, Chrysler, right? This constant bailout process where the government socializes the losses of companies that have made mistakes. This capital allocation process only works if things are allowed to break, if things are allowed to fall, if things that, that get that get crusty and aged and not working very well are able to break apart. So we have so, to say, Tucker, you're wrong because economic capitalism means we let we let things fail. Yes, we let them fail. That's exactly right. And 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 we don't go fortress America on this. Uh, question either. We don't contain everything. We are wealthier because we are able to trade everywhere and different countries on the planet are able to specialize. We want that economic specialization that maximizes human productivity, that gives everyone out there the maximum opportunity to find their place, their niche and flourish. We are all better. Just here. So let me throw out another piece of economic thought for you. Yeah. Everybody listening to this show right now is a consumer. You're a consumer. I'm a consumer, right? but not everybody's a producer and not everybody's production value is equal. Okay. So you want an economy that's geared towards the consumer. You want to make it so that people who are retired can consume and they don't lose their purchasing power. You want it so that people who are young can save even before they're working, before they're really, you know, having to pay for their own, pay their own bills. 
right? We have these two stages of life and we have sickness sometimes in between that pull us out of the game. And we're still consumers during those hours. So you want to emphasize that. So the way that you make sure that the consumer is the best taken care of is you allow a system that has robust competition between private actors who are profit motivated. Again and again, we keep coming back to if we cared about the individual and socialism does not care about the individual. If we cared about the individual. So the, the, the thing that we're driving at here today, and we've been talking mostly about socialism, incidentally, but the thing that, that Stephanie's kind of driving at in this, this column is you can't tell left from right anymore. The people who are kind of conservative or at least bearing that label these days are sounding much more nationalist sure. in, in, in their rhetoric. And this Make America ac- great again, right? America first. Yes. That. And so they come up with these crazy things, economic patriotism. What the hell is that? They come up with this, these ideas. And they sound a lot more like Bernie Sanders in the process. Like if you were to lay their policies down next to each other, they might use slightly different terminology for affect, but they essentially come to the same place. It's almost like there's a horseshoe design, right? Where at the bottom of the horseshoe, they're like, you know, right next to each other. They, they, may, have go, they may have diverged at one point, but they're coming back to meet each other at some point. They, 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 they agree fundamentally that the, the state should be in charge. What they disagree about is the individual characters or personalities they're going to put there. That's what they really disagree about. Well, they also ignore a basic accounting flaw, which is like the cost of all this, right? Yes, which we're experiencing. I mean, you know, yeah. the, 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 this debt is going up almost to the point where, okay, did, did a trillion just go by? I mean, it's amazing how fast that has moved. I was on in 2017. I was on a radio show. We don't. Have, we lost the recording, so I don't have the actual construct of the bet that I'm about to share. We don't have the. I don't have the specific details, so I couldn't collect on it as a result. But we were making predictions. We took calls from callers about how much higher the debt would be. So Barack Obama basically doubled the debt while he was in office, and I was arguing that the debt was going to increase by at least that same amount during Obama's terms. I'm sorry, during uh, Trump's terms. And of course, this was a conservative leaning audience. And of course, they said, no, Trump's going to drain the swamp and all that ridiculous crap. And he didn't do it. And he actually spent considerably more. And I said, you know, some crisis will inevitably come. Well, it ended up being COVID, right? They'll have some justification for why they can't make these cuts now. And there, that, that happened. Um, but he was already spending very, very rapidly. He was even before COVID. He was on a trajectory to far outseed, uh, out and exceed uh, Obama's growth, and the trajectory doesn't stop because you've got this president now, Biden, in office, trying to pass. When, in twenty twenty one, he was trying to pass a four trillion dollar bill. So there's no, there's there doesn't seem to be any breaks in 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 any of these people. And they believe that these that the problems are going to just never manifest. I mean, they at this time last year, they, there was already signs of inflation. And they were saying, there's not going to be any inflation. It's transitory. It's temporary. It's a, it's a blip. It'll be over in a couple of months. There's no actual inflation. But we, of course, lived through most of this year and found out that wasn't true. So they don't under, seem to understand the consequences that are coming. I'm tired. You know, it's very exhausting being Cassandra, by the way. But at the end of the day, what we got to get at here is that they, these two people are spending so much time hating each other. And they're fundamentally agreeing that they want to give more power to the state. 
And the more power they want to give to the state, then consequently, the more they're going to hate each other. And they're going to constantly be directed by this conflict machine, this media conflict machine, that they, the opposite side is the problem. When they both fundamentally agree that they're being left out of the club, they're, they're not part of the crony club. So how do we get and, back to our actual First Amendment rights on this stuff and, and start to take over and say our piece without being canceled or dissed or you know, minimized? This is where I think we've got to get to, to grace. I, I, I really think we have to have the ability to recognize the humanity, the innate humanity of other people, the fact that they have limited, they have their limits to their experience and understanding, and I have mine. And what we have to do is we have to sit down and drink lemonade together or a cup of coffee or a beer or whatever it is, your preferred beverage, right? To sit down and get to know each other once again and find out, you know, why do we think this? What do we, what are these views? And, and have this open dialogue. We've got to come out from behind these camps that we're in. And, and <laughs> what Stephanie Slade is getting at in this article that I think is, is important is that because there is um, this drive towards authoritarianism on both left and right, but they're also using extreme tactics and language on each other. Sure. And I think we need to do something to begin to spot uh, and recognize their tactics. And, and, and if with that awareness, that initial awareness, maybe we can start to deconstruct that in the conversations that we have happening right in front of us. Maybe we can start to see it when it's on TV or maybe when it's happening, you know, at the dining room table on the holiday. This kind of stuff makes news. You know, if it, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, that kind of thing. And the conflict machine is so good at offering us uh, clickbait. I hate to say it that way, that it's hard to know what's news and what's fact anymore. And uh, in this place of extreme authority, authoritarianism. Wow. What is that? Eight syllables? Yeah. <laughs> There's a word all by itself. We've got the craziest ass things happening. People are getting nominated with beliefs that wouldn't have stood up even 12 years ago as, as if they were fact. Yes. And make so, people are like, what happened in Florida where DeSantis simply revoked Disney's privilege to self-govern just like yes. stroke of the pen. This is, this is crazy. And this is really interesting. So I'm sitting down, I've had this conversation now several times with people who are on the right. And I will point out that this action is inherently not what is traditionally understood to be a conservative action. I ask them, do you believe in private property? Do you believe in low taxes? Do you believe government should be small and limited? And they'll say they yes to all these things. I'm like, well, this is exactly what Disney was providing. Disney had privatized the, the, the services and they were doing all of it and they were doing, they didn't need the taxes of that. They only had 30 some people living in the community. They didn't need that. So by basically nationalizing it, by basically doing a, a Chavez action on, this, on that territory in, that Disney controlled, what, you know, this was, you know, a real cut your nose off to spite your face kind of moment. They said, we'll take on all the governing. The state of Florida, remember how good we talked earlier that they were creating jobs, right? We'll take it over. So we're going to have a bunch of, of, of people. We're going to pay uh, far more for each job that we create. We're not necessarily going to pay the people more. We're just going to spend a lot more money. There's going to be a lot of graft and corruption and back and forth that goes on. We're going to make all those jobs a certain type of union, uh, government union job, and on it goes. Uh, DeSantis, you know, want to go long term. If he gets his full way in this plan, he'll actually create more Democrat voters, by the way. 
But what's going to happen to the counties that are, are handling it is they're going to find their tax burden increasing because now they have to take on the burden of those services. And this was and, a First and, Amendment issue from the start, right? DeSantis didn't completely. like something Disney said or did, or was it like they were actually right? Okay, but you start to see how different people, and then this was the weird thing. I'm sitting here criticizing this from the conservative perspective because most of the people I know in my terrestrial life locally happen to be more right leaning. But uh, you suddenly had people on the left defending free the free market, like, oh, wait a minute, this is limited government, this is whatever, like they didn't, neither side cared about their values. They were interested in the script. They were interested in the fight that they had with one another. So this is what the conflict machine repeatedly does. The conflict machine divides us up in tribes. And it says that someone has to be the loser. There has to be a loser. Has to be notice, a I didn't say that, right? notice I didn't say there had to be a winner. Like I, I have to point, I'm at pains to point this out. This is not a game that's necessarily designed to win yes. because the participants in it are fighting each other. They're engaged in a civil war and the people who are paying for promoting the game, get the fruit of the spoils. They win. But the two sides that divided up into tribes, they never win. One has to lose definitely more than one. Potentially, if you look at, at people as not being necessarily, you know, there's nine different groups, according to Pew, right? They don't all fit neatly into two parties. Have and we taken the, have we taken up all the need for actually making progress here in service to or perhaps in slavery to our fight? Say that question a little bit differently. Yeah. So what I'm wondering here is like the, the actual issue that we're trying, let's say it's free speech. We've created such an environment of terror around free speech that it's no longer about free speech. It's about trying not to say something. Yes. And, and we've talked about this here on the show before, but I want to say that this is inherently the bad, a bad idea. And the experience of being on this show now, um, we started in June. So when you spend your time thinking about something, and I'm thinking about well, the stuff we need to put on the show and the way we're going to explain things on the show, when you start mulling this idea over and over and over again in your head, you also begin to see things you didn't see before. I have this funny anecdote that uh, I met a podiatrist and he goes to, he tells me a story where he goes to Europe to look at art and he's looking at medieval art in these museums. So he's looking at stuff that's, you know, 600 years old and he, his eyes were gravi gravitated towards the feet of the people that were in there. Like, how did they paint feet at the time? What did feet look like? Were they the same as ours are now, right? And because uh, they didn't have the shoes we did, they don't have some uh, concrete, like he had all these reasons for it. I never would have gone to the museum. I doubt you would have either and had your eyes magnetically drawn to that spot. But that's what he's thinking about in his life. And thank God he is, right? So thinking about grace, I have become increasingly convinced that every time we shut down conversation, no matter how bad the actor that's in it, now, I do think, you know, you, you know they, they always bring up the crowd, shout fire in a crowded theater. There's obviously times where decorum, a certain level of decorum seems to be necessary, and you don't have to tolerate everybody's behavior in every setting. Like, there's certain things you come into my home and say, you might not stay here very long if you do, okay? But in general, in the public thoroughfare, anytime we shut down somebody, we lose something. And what we do is we push them further and further and further and further out to the margins and they become radicalized by that process. If someone stands up and says something absurd, 
and people don't treat it as absurd, inherently absurd. They actually ask, why do you think that? And they take it seriously and they care about that other person as a human being. Does it take the edge off? Do you maybe have a chance to have a conversation and enter their echo chamber? Do they feel honored enough that maybe they start to listen to what they're being told? Listen, I'm not saying it's going to win instantly or off the, right off the bat. Like, I'm not saying it's going to, it's going to just like, oh my gosh, you know, that's the greatest thing I ever heard. I was an idiot. I'm so glad you set me straight. I'm not saying it's going to work that way. I'm not saying it's going to work in all cases. I'm not even saying it's going to work in most cases, but in the margins, all this polarization that we've had going on has a lot to do with the fact that it is unacceptable for two sides to listen to each other anymore. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it's, and they're and willing it's, to go and, the, and, and this is, you know, she yeah. chronicles a lot in this article. Stephanie does a great job of chronicling quote after quote of people trying to lay out existential threats. She lays out the following. She said the tropes come in escalating stages. One is that the other side is irredeemably evil and out to destroy all that is good. A second is that our side is weak and overly beholden to procedural niceties, whereas our opponents are shameless about breaking their rules in the pursuit of power. And by the way, I hear that all the time, right? Well, if we don't fight back, you know, they're, they're cheating, they're doing this, whatever. We have to take these actions. And then the third one comes next. Following from these, it, whatever it takes to win is justified. Any institution standing in the way can be demolished and doing any less amounts to cowardice or surrender. How many times we hear these kind of phrases, right? And, and we're thinking, what are they winning in the first place? Are they fighting over some symptom that would not exist exist if the problem were solved? Most or of the better time, yet, if the coercion yes. didn't occur in the first place. Or if the coercion didn't, yep. So listen, if I can hold you at gunpoint and tell you you're going to do the thing my way, right? Well, that's the definition of democracy these days, Jim. So Frederick Douglass he's just one of the people over the centuries that's realized this, that they're, in fact, it goes all the way back to the Stoics. They realized that in your, you have a spirit inside you that is free to have thoughts that nobody can punish you for. You don't have to express them. Nobody has to hear them, but you can inside feel this sense of rebellion. So it exists. You, you exist as an individual. I think therefore I am, you exist. And the idea that we can stamp out bad by literally stamping on it, right? That we don't have to sit down and reason, that we don't have to go into that core person that's inside and have that conversation. We could take shortcuts. We can say it's, it's existential. We just have to crush them. If we just crush them, it'll all work out. And, and again and again in this article, she shows how the rhetoric is turned up so that anybody who is no, not willing to break the rules, not willing to smash the institutions, becomes a coward, or coward, becomes a surrenderer, becomes somebody who, is, who won't do the right thing and cannot be trusted. And everybody, as this intensifies, each of these groups expand because the threat is growing, 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 growing. And to not be on one side means that you are in danger of having nobody to protect you. It's like being caught in prison in, and there's two gangs and you don't have a gang. So I got to join one gang. Otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. I got to have a gang. I got to pick a side. That's my only insurance. Otherwise they're going to come take all our values. Well, the central coercive scheme of the state enables all of this, energizes all of this. And of course, why is it in existence? Because it profits a small handful of people who have set us at odds with each other. 
So Stephanie is on to something to suggest that they are losing liberalism and that we are real close to the bottom of the tree with that analysis. And she chronicles, she does such a good job in this Reason Magazine piece of explaining how they, they're, they're, they're converging to an authoritarian point, but they're converging there because they have, they have embraced coercive solutions and they have not recognized that there are people who have set them at odds, that they have been attracted to rival gangs, rival gangs. And this is equal opportunity too, because the Democrats have their solutions and the Republicans have their solutions and they're both different ways of stepping on each other. Exactly. That's all it is at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, that's all it is. How is it that anyone can feel like they have any kind of power agency in the middle of this? Well, I think you're raising an interesting point. I think that the reason that people are responding this way is a sense of powerlessness. I think people are having, uh, are fearful um, about where things are going. If, if you are, uh, we've, we've, We've been blessed to some degree that we are now having a discussion about our policing in this country, but there's been a community, communities, inner city communities that have dealt with these issues for a very long time. We have asked way, way too much of the police. They're asked to do a whole bunch of things. And, and, but you can see how this is frayed. The these relations are frayed in this, in the, in this culture. Um, we just had a, a decision come down from the Supreme court on abortion. And again, you can see how a, a group of people believe that their rights are being taken away, their ability to make decisions about their body is being taken away, and that's being made, some central authority is going to make that plan for them, it's going to decide how it's going to work, and they're going to force it potentially at gunpoint, right? They're going to have laws, which, you know, that means at the end of the day, someone's got a gun who is capable of enforcing it, and you can see the fray. You can see, she chronicles in this piece, the Justice Department decided last year to treat parents who were expressing concern at local school board meetings as potential domestic terrorists. You weren't allowed to dissent at a school board meeting without getting potentially turned in. And they wanted to make a system, a program of this at the federal level for local school board matters. And of course, those things were getting very contentious because there were people inside those school board uh, settings that were upset their kids weren't back in school. They were upset that their kids were being sexualized in, in, in the curriculum, um, that test scores were going down instead of focusing on the things that, that mattered most in terms of trying to bring along education. I mean, this has been going on both sides. You see this culture war and they're using the state and they're using the power of the state to hammer each other. And so it's kind of inevitable that they end up at each other's throats. They feel this sense of helplessness and this powerlessness, and they start to act out. They, they get, things get even worse, almost riotous, if not riotous. Yes, I've seen this way too much. It's not terrorism, it's unskillful disagreement, perhaps unskillful dialogue. It's definitely I not think graceful. it's fear. I think it's fear. I think it's the, the, the problem that we cannot seem to get our hands around is that we feel so out of control and that things are headed down some kind of slippery slope. And it's true. It is because we keep going back and doing the same things over and over and expecting this time it's going to be different. Insanity. But I just want to say, I want to say the power you give a politician you love today to do the thing you really want done is a power that's going to be abused tomorrow by a politician you hate to do things that you loathe. So we should not be, even if you think your guy is going to do the right thing. And by the way, they never do. 
right? Conservatives don't conserve anything. Progressives don't make progress, right? It's not going to happen. But, but even if you could get the guy that you and gal that you wanted and they were to do the thing that you wanted, they've got new powers, someone else will come inevitably who is, does not share your values and will take those things away. And so we've got to get away from, from this, this coercive method. This is what's bending. Everybody's, we've got these, these cultural tensions and everybody's turning to the state to solve them. And there's no grace to be found there. That's an institution of force. It's an institution of aggression. At the end of the day, though, there is a moral system of beliefs that governs what progressives love and governs what conservatives love. Mm -hmm. And I'm using that word advisedly, moral, meaning your <laughs> the way that you apply ethics in real life, right? Your principles, the things that light you up, your core values. And those aren't necessarily wrong, and they aren't necessarily in opposition. But we've gotten to a place where we can no longer see that in one another. How do we change? Well, we start with ourselves. Um, and it's interesting. I, I, I think, you know, Stephanie, I think lays out, uh, Stephanie Slade lays out her thesis near the end of the piece when she writes, this is what feels broken in our politics, not the way left and right are further apart than ever, it is the ways they're closer together. With powerful elements on each side, jettisoned the longstanding liberal idea of respecting the rights of even those with whom you strongly disagree. In a previous broadcast, we talked about Skokie, Illinois, when the ACLU this is 1979. I, I didn't know this until I read Stephanie's article that they got like 30,000 people to quit the ACLU when they decided to defend the Nazis walking through Skokie. But that's a moment of real conscience and principle. And we need more of that. And the ACLU has apparently abandoned that uh, during this recent um, wave of division, this very current wave of division, starting with Charlottesville, the Unite the Right rally, they thought the stakes were too high. We can no longer uh, do this. I, I, I come down uh, uh, to, the, to the idea that you, that you were beginning to express there, that we have to recognize the imago Dei, the inherent dignity of the individual given by creator God, and that that. If we don't do that, if we don't recognize people as doing the best they can, if we don't have grace for them, they won't have grace for us. And so it's an act of courage, not fear, extreme courage to step outside of this system and to try to be different and to try to be a model of how to be different to other people around you so that maybe they see that light and want to do as you're doing. So we're not talking about a party here. We're talking about something that's inherent within the human system. Our, our desire to be individual, our desire to have to find a way that works for us, our desire to have value as an individual. So if we want individualism, we're going to have to be more individual. We're going to have to stop being part of mobs, right? We're going to have to divorce ourselves from the mobs. And that's dangerous and uncomfortable. And, you know, mobs do things like crucify. Jesus showed us that. So if we want the change, we have to first be that change. So and and I, I want to I, I close with some hope. I really, yeah, I, I was going to say, there, I because I feel like there's hope here. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and this, is, this is actually uh, Stephanie Slade's conclusion. And I really like this. She said, in a poll commissioned last year by the group More in Common, 
three and four respondents agreed that the differences between Americans are not so big that we cannot come together. Demonization of the other is a powerful political weapon. And those inclined towards authoritarianism are particularly comfortable using it. But what is sometimes called the grand liberal bargain, a social truce in which each side broadly agrees to respect the other's freedoms, even if it doesn't like what the other side will do with it, is a powerful defense and one in keeping with the natural ethos of America. It's not too late to choose it.